When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Hello, good morning once again. It is a special programme today. Your favourite moments of the year, as voted by the listeners of the Midlands Today Show. And thank you very, very much. I know the radio's probably broken and you can't change it, but hey, I appreciate it. Today, the secret to fertility. How to help Mother Nature and what to do if she's not your friend. You meet the man who battled five others to be declared the 2023 Westmeath Bachelor. And never mind couch to 5K if you're planning that in January. The Midlands 103 presenter who is going from the studio chair to a full marathon in only a few short months. First, the former sailor who once boarded a giant Russian vessel all on his own, only to discover the crew asleep, whose second career saw him save lives on a grand scale, and who is now starting his third career. And his love affair with water all began in his hometown of Athlone. Let's meet, once again, John Leach. It was great. I went to Maris Brothers, you know, the national school. Then went to the secondary mm-hmm. school. Uh, but I was always drawn to the river and to Loch Reef. Just uh, loved water, loved water sports, swimming, fishing, um, uh, diving. I started diving when I, as soon as I was 16. That's the, the, the age that they, um, that they allow you to get you know, good training in diving and sailing, of course. And messing about in boats, uh, helping people convert boats. There wasn't as many fancy boats on the on the river then. I used to be converting barges. You know, uh, Sid Shine and the Fox. People might remember him. And he had a great band called Sid and the Saints. But uh, uh, he had the, he built the Jolly Mariner there, just upstream mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. So I spent an awful lot of time with Sid uh, and learned an awful lot from all the crew members of the Fox uh, about uh, water sports and water activities and sailing and boating and. Oh, just generally messing about in the river, as the fellow says. Yeah, yeah, great. Sounds idyllic. Oh, how it was. How big was the family? Uh, there was five of us in the family. Uh, and I'm, where were you in the litter? I'm number two in the litter, yeah. I was the first male. Yeah, and then there was um, uh, my my next sister. There was Anna, my elder sister, Rachel, next sister below me, and then Gareth, my younger brother, and then Lolan, who's the youngest, yeah. And uh, three of them are all around that zone, yeah, and uh, Rachel is out near, closer to Mullingar. And were you an academic type? Oh, not really, no. In fact, I would have mitched now, I've been truthful. The river would have pulled me pulled me away from school on a few occasions when, when there was some activities going on that I didn't want to miss. Mm. But, uh, I know, I did, I did the, um, you know, the bare, I suppose, the, the bare minimum. But no, I wasn't, I wasn't academically sort of... Um, you know, oriented that way, not... No, your influences career-wise very much came from the water. And we'll get into the first career in just a moment. But our opening song comes from David Bowie. Tell us about this and what it means to you. Oh, well, I think uh, Bowie, I just adore Bowie. I've been a fan of David Bowie um, since since I was a kid, literally. And I can remember the Starman. But also, uh, just that particular song, and and life on Mars and space oddity, all those that was all as a result of you know landing on the moon. Do you remember that? Uh, and I was at the time, we, we lived out in uh, in Tiberias, out in Israel, because uh, my father was at the army of the United Nations. We were out there with the family, and this um, a Kiwi family, New Zealand family, 
uh, had a black and white TV. So off we went down to watch the you know the the, the lads landing on the on, on the on the moon, mm-hmm. and that was fascinating. And then, as you know, the rest. Bowie got very mm-hmm. uh, stimulated by this and all these songs and which were incredible. And I think we were all amazed. I mean, Ronnie kids thought it was amazing. Fellas landing on the moon, you know, it was just unbelievable. I mean, to people nowadays, it's different, but at the time, it was just unbelievable, you know. Yeah. Originally from Athlone and very much a child of the River Shannon, moved then, I suppose, further along the Shannon, down out Limerick, down around to Cork Harbour, and signed up for the Navy. Why? That's right, yeah, 1979. Uh, why? Because I, just my love of the water, love of uh, boats, yachts, ships, uh, diving, everything to do with the maritime and uh, to do with water, I just loved it. I mean, I was brought up 14 feet from the River Shannon. So when you're that close to the water, I, I would have spent even my youth before I went down, before I took the, <laughs> the boat right down the Shannon around by, Cor- around by the Kerry Coast and the Skelligs and up into Cork mm-hmm. Harbour, I would have spent, uh, you know, a huge amount of time on water. And I just loved it. It was just for me. How varied was your service? Oh, yeah, it was very interesting. So it went to the Curra initially with the, with, with the soldiers and they give you a hard time or whatever. Uh, and then we, because uh, at that stage in Ireland, we didn't have a maritime, a national maritime college like we have now, the fantastic college down Ring of Skiddy, it's second to none really in the world. We had nothing. So we were sent over to the Royal Navy because they were, you know, the, the neighbours as it were. And that, that in itself was a bit challenging because it was uh, in 1979, you might remember that Mountbatten had just been murdered mm. by the IRA. So it wasn't a great time to be a, a Irish in England at the time. And we were called Paddy. Everybody was a Paddy, you know, that sort of way, and you just got on with it. Uh, but then what happened, I went, went to this college called um, uh, Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth in Devon. And uh, but who was there but only Prince Andrew. <laughs> so I had to rub shoulders with him then. In fact, the first duty I ever did was with him uh, when I was there. Yeah, I always remember. Uh, and at the time, he was a grandfather. I didn't see any issue with, uh, issue with him at all. Uh, awful sad the way yeah, well, his, his legacy has very much been tarnished as oh, we know yeah, yeah, yeah. but so, how, how closely did you interact with him oh very closely and, and um, I, was, I met the Queen uh, twice and Philip twice I was sat beside uh, Princess Anne at a mess dinner where all she wanted to do was talk about horses and because uh, there's horses in her family as well po- what ponies really mm. the cobs you were able to carry the conversation I was able to carry the conversation the only one had any knowledge of horses so I was sat beside her so grateful for her and were you minding your P's and Q's the whole time or were they laid oh, back? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you have to, yeah. yeah. Oh, you get into trouble otherwise, yeah. But I remember the captain of the college said to me afterwards, uh, well, well done, Leach, well done, Leach. You, you, you got more attention out of it than I did. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't really interested, I think, that much in, the, in what, the, what the Navy were doing at the time. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was a great time. Went off to HMS Intrepid, went around the whole the Mediterranean training. Uh, it's, you know, stopped in Gibraltar, uh, Trieste, Marseille. I uh, remember, being, remember being taken into Trieste and there was a helicopter landing ship and when you're at sea everything is slow and the horizon is really broad and the next minute we were into Trieste and they had us in the helicopters and they put us up, up into the Alps with the uh, Italian uh, um, mountain climbing regiment called the Alpini where we did uh, sailing and mountain climbing and trekking shapers our hearts were in our mouths you know, when you're on the sea level mm. for weeks and then suddenly you're up in a helicopter and you're around yeah. two, two and a half thousand, three thousand metres up. Shock to the system. Oh, it certainly was. <laughs> it was a great way of, of learning to manage your fear. <laughs> 
So yeah. wh- when you get back to Ireland and, and through the many years of service, uh, you amass stories and you shared one with us before. But for anybody who missed it, and it's very topical, obviously, given the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, belligerence and so on. But tell us about boarding the Russian oh, spy yeah. ship. So it was one of the Russian spy ships that um, they, 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 the, Depart- the, the Department of Foreign Affairs were aware of because the UK had told us that he, he's around your waters there somewhere. We don't know where it is exactly, but we believe, I think an, an RAF um, Nimrod had spotted it uh, coming up the RAC, so we were informed. And at, it was during the Cold War, early 80s, so we had to monitor Russian spice ships and Russian warships and indeed all warships. You'd, you'd, you'd log them the whole time and give details of their passage, their course, uh, speed, whatever they were up to, any activities. So this one anyway was anchored off Cahor Point and if anybody who's been at sea would know that Cahor Point is no place to be really anchored. It's not a, it's not a nice anchorage. It wouldn't offer much. Um, but, the, but she was huge. She was very, very big. Way, way bigger than we were. We were like a small... I always remember when we came up alongside it looking up at it. Mm. You know, it, it was a very big ship. And it was full of aerials. You know, they used to basically, they sat there and they were monitoring all the, the radio signals between the Americans, the, the, the Brits, the Europeans, Germans, whatever, all the NATO forces. Uh, and that's how they, 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 I mean, the Russians are great on their intelligence. But anyway, the captain said, we were told to tell them to get out. So <laughs> I remember going over and it was, it was very rough. It was a northeasterly, so it was horrible weather. And it was in early March, the first week of March, bitterly cold. And the, the gear that they have nowadays, we didn't have all that fancy gear. And uh, when we went over with the boarding party anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I and, and by remember. the way, they didn't acknowledge your approach. Oh, no, they? no. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't put down, uh, wouldn't put down an anchor. for. Or sorry, big word. Wouldn't put down a boarding ladder for mm. me to board, which is the normal. We went through the, the international protocol of, you know, it's, uh, I want to board you, SQ3 and the radio and flags and sound signals, did all that. Oh, they just was there us. any sign of people on no, deck? No, not, not a sinner, not a sinner to be seen, nor in the bridge, nor in the bridge. So captain says, go over there. And uh, so we went over with a grapnel and, you know, a knotted rope. And we managed to, we, we slung it up over the, the, the taff rail, kind of, on a, a, like a rail, and it, it seemed to hold. So anyway, up I went anyway. And then when I managed to get up there, then I turned around to the lads and I says, come on, lads. And I won't, I won't say exactly what they said to me, but uh, basically it was, uh, no, so we're not following you. You're on your own. You're on your own. So I'm suddenly on my own, but only a, a pistol, you know, like a, a pistol. And uh, went up to the bridge, which was about three decks up, got into the bridge, not a sinner there. And then I went down in, in ships generally. There's a cabin on the side, normally for a pilot and for the captain just below the bridge so they can get up in a, in a hurry. And I went down, knocked on the doors of nothing. I said, oh, come on, this is a bit of a joke here now. Like went a down. ghost ship. Exactly. So I went down a few decks, not a sinner to be seen. So I went back up, knocked on the door again, and there was no answer. So I just opened the door gently. And there they were all, there he was lying on his bunk. And those, those Russians, they had, um, they had a, like a commissar uh, who was a political captain who made the serious decisions. And then you had like a nautical captain, a seamanship captain, a navigation and so, anyway, in my in my, the Russian translation um, little book that we were given, I went over and with pencils and gesticulations, I eventually got 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 this message across: get out! You know, you're not you've no no authority to be in our waters. You're in, within the six mile limit. And uh, oh no, they, and with problems in the engine room, I said, oh, okay, okay, let's go down and see the problems in the engine room. Whereupon, oh, 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 okay, there's this, you can imagine this, uh, it took a while with, with uh, the, yeah, the language yeah, yeah, barrier, yeah. but eventually they said, oh, no, you, you needn't go down and see, the, we, we go, we go. So 
I've never seen them, I hope. I was about I mean, to say, yeah. oh, this massive ship, you, yeah. like, what colour were, you, were your underpants at this stage? <laughs> <laughs> no, but then, at that season, I then also said, and put down the boarding ladder, and then the, lad, the boarding party did come up. But it wasn't until I literally said, you've know, well, got to move now. Uh, and so when they saw, they realised that the game was over and the, the, the boarding party were going to come up anyway, they, I think they realised the game was up. So it took them, they took their time. And we had to stay on board until the anchor was lifted. And I was the last man off, the, as it were, off the, the ship. But uh, yeah, they, they took off and that was the end of it. I'd yeah. say you were glad to be back on I was. terra firma once I that was, was done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Breakfast in America. Tell oh, us about yeah. this song. Supertramp. I, I also love Supertramp. And I suppose around that time, you know, that was I was in the Navy at that time. So it always brings back good memories of... of um, of of lovely music. I mean, I love Supertramp. Still listen to them today. Uh, but Breakfast in America is just one particular number I really enjoy. Midlands today with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands one oh three. Our guest is John Leach, who has three careers. We're still on number one in the Irish Navy, and we've heard about your encounter with the Russian spy ship. You would have met many fishermen and trawlers over the years. We've heard a lot, for instance, about Spanish trawlers in our waters. But what about this Japanese vessel? OK, yes, so the Japanese um, rarely came into our waters, but they came into our waters uh, right off the west side of the Porcupine Bank, right out at the limit. Uh, but they would come in into the shallow water where the, the, the bluefin tuna were. And it, the Air Corps would have spotted them. And it's normally in about this time of the year, July, August, they come in. And so we and bluefin tuna, yeah. very lucrative oh, catch the, for the, them. The most exotic and the most lucrative fish really in the world. Uh, the, in, the Japanese pay the top price for it. I mean, uh, so it cut long so short. If anybody was in Galway, they'd remember the white ships. The ships were white. And I mean, even the fish deck was like, um, uh, was like a, an operating theatre. Stainless steel, scalpels, everything. They don't, they don't um, as it were, waste anything. But anyway, we were told that the Air Corps said that some of them in our, in our waters, out we go anyway, and we arrested this uh, ship again, which is bigger than we were, um, and brought it into Galway. And at the time, it's fine. I'm trying to remember, I think it was 550,000 um, euro at the time. But the, the value of the fish... I, it was several million, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was huge. It, it would have, it would, it literally would have paid for a gun towards the, the I mean, the Ashing, was the ship I was on at the time, and at that stage, I mean, she almost paid for herself in, in fishery fines, mm, but this one mm, definitely got mm, her over mm. the line in terms of the cost of the, of the, of the ship. But we're in Galway, <clears throat> and we come back out, and uh, next minute we get from the Coast Guard that the, another Japanese ship is in trouble, is in distress. And uh, their, their engine is broken, They're, but unfortunately, those people have died. Uh, and they uh, basically, there was eight, eight, in fact, I'll explain the story. We went out anyway, and we came alongside them. The weather was quite good, I remember, at the time. And uh, we sent a boarding party over, and basically, they went over with um, um with breathing, BAS, breathing apparatus sets. Why? <clears throat> because... Um, there was a problem in the engine room, and in those years, uh, halon was used to drench uh, a fire, to, to suppress a fire. Nowadays, you don't use carbon dioxide, uh, mainly, because it's, it's poisonous. And unfortunately, there was a leak in the halon firefighting system, and the, uh, the people who were on watch, the, the sailors who were on watch, uh, engineers, they died. 
from the hill on. And then so the, the, the sort of captain said, well, you, well, you go down there now and find out what's happening, where are the lads sort of thing. And then you went down and, of course, you died. And then more went down and in total eight, eight of them died uh, down in the engine room. So it was a pretty uh, dreadful situation. But anyway, we had to tow them back into Galway. Uh, and obviously the bodies would have been removed there and flown, uh, repatriated to, to Japan. So that was a very sad story. But the Japanese, member of the Japanese ambassador, they were very, very um, obviously pleased with what we had done. And they invited us up to uh, their, I think, their, their embassy where they have their uh, parties or whatever. And they invited the entire ship's company up. And so we all went up. It was, it was really funny. Uh, the, the army, the ship was in in Dunleary, and they brought the, the army brought us up there, and we had this great sushi and um, sake wine, <laughs> which most of us had never had before in our lives. It's strong stuff. Oh, it certainly was. Yeah, actually, we were all we, we ended up singing for the, for the Japanese who loved it. Thought it was great. All the lads, some some great singers and musicians aboard. Mm. So, with uh, yeah, it ended out very well, and they gave us a lovely vellum, which uh, was on the ship there, thereafter. Yeah, yeah. How high in the ranks of the Navy did you climb? Um, I climbed to, uh, to, as a lieutenant commander. I commanded uh, two ships, the um, Ashling and the Orla. Orla was my last ship. Um, and I was also then in charge of the diving section for a while, the Naval Service diving section, which does a lot of work uh, underwater, search and recovery. Uh, it used to, at up, to, up to when I left, we used to dispose of a lot of World War II torpedoes, World War I II, mines that the fishermen would, would pick up we used to dispose of them. That was always a bit of fun. Uh, but uh, thankfully, that's an element of work. We haven't had mm. explosives on our shores for, oh, God, years, I'd say 20 years now, more, maybe 30 years, 30 mm. years now at this stage would be, yeah. So, yeah, so at that time, the diving section, uh, it, it was, it was, it's always been under pressure. Probably still is, in fact, it is, I know it is to this day because the Navy finds it so hard to retain, you know, highly qualified people. Uh, and so divers, it's the toughest uh, course, really. Um, uh, it's essentially based on a, you know, on a, on a Navy SEAL type of a, a course. So it's pretty brutal, uh, very, very tough. And that's they've, they've had to improve it because of health and safety. But this is pre-health and safety. Uh, and for people, a lot of people, especially with the Royal Navy, I did one diving course in HMS Vernon in Portsmouth. And they used to say that the, the tables that, uh, on which you your decompression tables, they were written in, in divers' blood because so many of them died trying to figure out you know, what, how, how long you stay at certain depths yeah. to decompress before you, 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 you rise, arise, you know, you surface. So, yeah, that was... Um, I got a lot of technical... I got a side scan sonar for the Navy at the time, a whole lot of new diving uh, gear, a, a, um, a geometer, um, lots of a new boat, all kinds of stuff which we, we, we needed because we didn't have the equipment. Uh, it's great to see them now. They've got way better equipment mm. now, uh, and it's it's gone from strength to strength. And well done. And so. in, in, in equipment terms, yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as numbers, that's another story. Oh, that's a disaster. It really we, is. The Navy's in a bad state. What what three ships now uh, mm. tied up? It's very sad. We uh, might come back actually okay. and, and and finish on that point. But clearly, you speak of your time in the Navy uh, with great fondness. Oh yeah. Why did you leave? Um, the Navy is a single man's paradise or a single person's paradise nowadays, single lady's paradise and a married one's nightmare. And that's really why, I mean, with young family, I, I mean, my 21 and a half years in the Navy, I spent 14 and a half away over the horizon, missing, you know, literally births, deaths, you know, funerals, all, all marriages, all that kind of thing. 
so I missed an awful, an awful lot and I think my, my very tolerant wife realised, uh, John, I think it's time for a, mm. a second career. And you know the expression, happy wifey, happy lifey. So what did John Leach's second career involve? Let's find out after these. It's time for the latest Community Diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands. On today's Community Diary, LOETB drop-in clinics for form-filling and digital online support are available every Monday in Tullamore Library from 10am until 12 noon and Port Leach Library every Tuesday from 10am until 12 noon. It's a free and confidential service and no appointment is needed as this is a drop-in service. Ross Core Clinic treats and supports RSV, flu, pneumonia, bronchitis, COPD, as well as a range of digestive issues, skin, muscle and joint problems, cancer support, plus women's, men's, children's and infants' health. With evening appointments available, contact Emmett Walsh or Eva on 057-9355844 or online at medicalherbalist.ie. Want to brush up on your writing, maths or computer skills? Contact your local adult learning services at 057-86-61338 for a leash or 057-9349-444 for Offaly. See LOETB on Facebook. The Community Diary can be viewed on our website midlands103.com and if you would like to use the diary then please call 0818 300 103 or email diary at midlands103.com The Community Diary with thanks to Tormy Solicitors experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis Tormies.ie Well basically I suppose my my own voyage through life uh, because I spent virtually all my my time on the water as, as, as we just discussed and I still spend lots of time on the water and we'll talk about my third career, which again is water-related. Uh, so I'm a hydrophile, I think is what, how they describe me, somebody who, who is a, a part of the water. Mm. Uh, and so I always have been. But Christy, great favourite of my wife's as well. So it's a lovely song, absolutely lovely song. Lovely. Yeah. Christy used to babysit our family when we lived in, in Newbridge, when, when we were toddlers. <laughs> really? Sorry, his name was Christopher. In Artillery Place? I, yeah, his, his mother um, always referred to him as Christopher. He was never Christy. <laughs> oh, you, can't you, you can't just tell us that and not expand. Oh, I, so he used to babysit. Uh, his dad died very young, as you might recollect. And he used to babysit um, for my parents. My dad was in the army in, in the car at the moment, in, in, at the time in the 3rd Battalion. And uh, when they'd go out, Christy would babysit us. But, um, and did he uh, sing? The, the other thing, though, is did he sing to you while he was babysitting? I, I don't really, I don't quite remember. He probably surely did. But um, um, and we weren't any toddlers, for God's sake. But um, don't forget uh, your shovel if you want to go to school. Did with him, though, was uh, brought him fishing and brought him you know, because I think his mum was anxious that he might be going in the wrong direction, as it were. And so he used to call into us regularly every time he used to play in, in the Midlands, whatever, in that loan. Used to have this um, camper van, which of course I'd never come across in my life before. These camper mm. vans, this mm. back in the, in the early seventies, and, and uh, Christy had one, and he'd uh, he'd camp outside the house, and you know he'd have dinner with us, whatever. And uh, uh, he, he's, he, my my mum, she taught music anyway, and my, in fact, all of that side of the family, they're all uh, um, great, uh, more into classical type of music, uh, maybe than 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 um, than con- contemporary or pop or rock or whatever. And so, yeah, lots of great discussions about, I remember, Israeli music, Arabic music, because when we came back to the Middle East, my parents had bought Israeli <coughs> LPs and Arabic ones. 
and uh, Chris used to listen to them to try and get a bit of inspiration, uh, you know, uh, in, in writing his own music. Yeah. He owes you some royalties, it sounds like. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we'd, I don't think we'd be demanding royalties now. I know he was a very good friend of the, of the family. Yeah, he was. Indeed. Yeah, he well, my parents are dead, obviously. Mm. So, mm. well, yeah. and he wrote, actually, he actually wrote a very nice email to us there only uh, last year um, about the uh, Leach family. Yeah, he, thank you, and thank you, my, my dad. I think particularly, he was fond of my dad. You are a man of many stories, and, and one he didn't share with us earlier was about being seconded by Charlie Hawhey out of the Navy. But unfortunately, we have to leave the Navy behind, and as you did uh, because of family reasons, and you have a choice of anything. Why does water safety land on your plate? At that stage, I had spent nearly three years in the naval diving section, and we'd got, uh, now I'd been a diver all, most of my career because I started diving in the very early 80s. Um, but I recovered so many bodies, and you go to all these sites where people had drowned, and you recover the bodies, and I started realizing, you know, that these are preventable, and including suicide, which at the time people didn't think of. You know, when I went in in two thousand one into into it's now called Water Safety Ireland, but it was mm. Irish Water Safety. I remember the first meeting I mentioned, you know, uh, suicide is. Oh no, no, we're we're just into accidental drownings. And I thought to myself, oh, no, no, we're not. <laughs> and so I worked very, very hard to, uh, with the Samaritans and, uh, particularly uh, and to uh, and also Pieta House uh, laterally. But um, in terms of drowning prevention, because all, the, all drownings are preventable. Uh, and so um, I remember going to a meeting in the, the Department of um, Transport, the Coast Guard headquarters up in, in Dublin, Leeson Lane. And the director at the time, Liam Curran, an absolute gentleman, a brilliant guy, and he said, well, John, this uh, organisation, what, what are you going to bring to it? And I said, uh, Lee, my job is to put you out of business. And he had yeah. a big, long pause. And then he, he twigged what I meant. So at that stage, the Coast Guard and the RLI did not have preventive, uh, drowning prevention mm. strategy uh, at all in their organisations. They were focused, which in fairness they came from. They were created to rescue people at, at sea. And so um, they uh, now, as you know, they all have education systems. They've got preventive, uh, drowning preventive strategies. So <clears throat> I think my influence there was I'd seen how people could, uh, how, how they drowned both accidentally and through um, self-harm and realised that we can, we can take uh, actions here to reduce it. And, so when and, I, and you I, tracked the numbers over time. So what was the impact? Well, when I went in there, on average, we, we always work on a 10-year average for something like drowning because uh, otherwise you'll always get spikes, you know, year to year. And so there was 185 a year was the average when I went in in 2001. And when I left last year, we were down to 115. So that's a reduction of 70 a year. Well done. We have a long way to go. And I'm, I've got every confidence that, uh, that the RNLI, the Coast Guard and Water Safety Ireland will continue to do a brilliant job and try and you know, raise awareness. Because as a nation, we have to, uh, we have to you know, improve our attitude towards water safety, our whole behaviour around water and, and, and change the whole culture, which has changed. It's changing the whole time. But culture you know, can take decades to, to change. And it is, it's, it's changing and it's changing for the better. So hopefully we'll be losing fewer and fewer people. Uh, to, to our, our waterways, be they at sea or be they in the canals, lakes, rivers. Uh, in fact, the majority of people who drown, drown actually in inland waterways. They don't drown at sea at all. Yeah, And perhaps that's a misconception because I certainly would have assumed the, the sea was more treacherous. Yeah, the, the sea is more treacherous, but uh, people get trained more. Whilst uh, when people go on r- rivers, like rivers account, rivers are the most dangerous 
And a lot of people underestimate how dangerous they are because it's fast flowing water mm. uh, and you can get snagged, you can get tangled up in, you know, you know, think of even the Shannon, there's some place you swim, you get, there's branches of trees, there's all kinds of uh, um, obstacles that would, would catch you out. Uh, and then the other thing is, obviously, there's less buoyancy in fresh water, there's much more buoyancy in, in salt water, so it's more difficult, more challenging to swim in fresh water than it would be in uh, um, in, in salt water. And quarries, of course, account for an awful lot of yeah. tragic drownings, which people should never be in there in the first instance. But teenagers are teenagers. They tend to, uh, you know, sneak off maybe and have beers or whatever. They've been up to, up to no good anyway. And they, they, they end in tragedy, which is terribly sad. But no, overall, um, Ireland as a country, we're now leading the world, the developed world, in terms of uh, the reduction in drowning. So I'm hoping that that will continue and we'll just see fewer and fewer, fewer, and fewer people drown. It should be literally zero tolerance, it has to be. Well, that is a commendable legacy. How long did you spend with Water Safety Ireland? Another 21, just over 21 years again. Just over 21 years again, yeah. So I know I, I, I enjoyed the work. It was great. Uh, fantastic volunteers. There's a great na- a network of volunteers, uh, Water Safety Ireland, water uh, volunteers all around the country, inland and coastal, <clears throat> do amazing work uh, on the whole voluntarily. Uh, and they've, they, without them, you wouldn't have the, that change of culture that we require and that improvement of behaviour on the water. That's what you need, education. And, of course, we have, uh, when I left, uh, the good news also was that every stand of education, we had a, a water safety uh, drowning prevention program. And that's really imp- important because education is really how you, you, you save people's lives. So we've had one career, two careers. What is the third career? And will, will there be a fourth? That's after these. Love the Midlands. Love Midlands today. Midlands 103. John Leach is from Athlone originally, spent many years in the Navy and then spent another two decades in, it was Irish Water Safety, now it's Water Safety Ireland. So what does, and I'm not going to use the the or word because you're not retired, what does life after two careers look like? Well, a third career is Gareth Fitzgerald uh, always always said that uh, everybody should have three careers. So I'm on my third career and that's basically as a marine consultant a yacht and small craft surveyor. Uh, and so what that really entails is I would do some work with some organisations in terms of advising them on various aspects of uh, it can be everything from water safety to uh, management of, of a marina. It could be um, developments, that sort of thing. And then my week-to-week work really is um, surveying yachts and surveying cruisers, cruisers that, like that you see on the Shannon. Mm. Uh, and I've really enjoyed that because, as you've heard throughout the last to the, the show, I've been uh, you know on boats all my life. In fact, I know boats better than virtually anything else because I spent all my life in on on boats and uh, and ships, obviously as well. And so I, I've learned a lot. Uh, you know, I've been gone to college and everything. So I, and I've been a member of the International Institute of Marine Surveyors since uh, 1998. Uh, there's only four of us actually in the country and they, it takes quite a bit of um, you've got to do your CPD like most of these organisations institutes you've got to do your CPD every year attend courses do training uh, and so I enjoy that I enjoy the challenge uh, in, in life yeah. And are the inland waterways as busy now as they would have been in the past because I remember in the 90s you had cruisers on the canals you had cruisers on the Shannon is it perhaps gone backwards a little? Um, it is cyclical. Uh, I wouldn't like to use the word backwards. It's, it is, I think, uh, activity on the, the inland waterways is definitely cyclical. Obviously, it improved, it increased hugely during the COVID. 
And in fact, uh, mm-hmm. when I go around to boat yards now, there's a whole lot of boats left on the uh, hard due to Ryanair. <laughs> because people are saying, I'm not going on the Shannon this year. We're going to go to Portugal or Spain or Italy or wherever it is or Turkey. Uh, uh, Greece and they're gone so there are oh. a lot of boats at the moment are perhaps some heart. deals to be done <laughs> yes uh, at the moment it's a good time to buy a boat uh, well, the best, actually the best time to buy a boat is in the, is November, December because people you know they haven't used the boat and I think no we're not going to use it next year are we no we won't you always sell it so, that, yeah. that's a top tip to keep in the head yeah and then when you're not working what's the hobby oh hobby is obviously uh, sailing uh, particularly um, uh, I, I'm a national race officer with our sailing but I'm a keen, uh, you know, racer myself. And then the other thing I do to keep fit is I cycle. I love to cycle. I did the uh, Dungarvan Greenway with a friend uh, last Saturday. Did 75 kilometres, yeah, at about 27 kilometres an hour. So I'm, 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 I've maintained my fitness over the years. I was years. about to say, you swine, I can only ever <laughs> get about 23, 24. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, um, I used to, I ran marathons as well. Uh, I, I, one marathon that I'll never forget is the Dublin one when I used to finish in... in um, you know, in St. Stephen's Green. And you remember the, the big digital clock, you know, mm. the digital mm. clock, the Seiko clock, and running in. And I, 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 I was actually at sea at the time. I was actually doing my training at sea. We would anchor. I'd go ashore, run on the Bear Island, run anywhere, uh, to try and get the, the, you know, the, the miles up. But anyway, just running into that bloody clock, so use my language, yeah. But I want to do it in three hours. I end up doing it three hours and three seconds. So. Oh! One of my regrets in life, yeah. (laughs) I don't think that's anything to regret. Okay, another couple of seconds, but still, that's a fantastic time. John, we've only scratched the surface, indeed, of some of these stories. We didn't even get to talk about naval recruitment, which I suppose could fill a whole hour in itself. Unfortunately, I could, yeah, yeah. For the moment, thank you very much for being generous with your time. Well, thank you very much and to all your listeners. Thank you. John Leach, from Athlone, was in the Navy, was in Water Safety Ireland and is now a marine consultant and surveyor. You are listening to the best of the Midlands Today Show from 2023 as voted by the listeners of the programme. And in the next hour, the secret to fertility, how to help Mother Nature and what to do if she's not your friend. You meet the man who battled five others to be declared the 2023 Westmeath Bachelor. And, never mind the couch to 5K, we have our own Peter Dunn here, who is going from the studio chair to a full marathon. We'll find out in the next hour if it's in practice as well. Love the Midlands? Love. Midlands You are listening to the best of the Midlands Today Show. And still to come this hour, the man who was crowned Westmeath Bachelor for 2023, although rumour has it he may not be a bachelor any longer. Peter Dunn, the intrepid Midlands 103 presenter who fancies himself as a marathon runner. But I don't think Peter's done a 5K yet. We'll find out more in a few minutes' time. First... When Mother Nature isn't your friend, and it is a very distressing experience for so many couples who have the dream of one day becoming parents. We dedicated a whole series of features during the year to fertility, to helping Mother Nature, and to finding out what your options are when she's not your friend. So let's once again meet Dr. David Walsh from firstivf.ie in claim. And David, we're going to get into artificial intelligence, which is very much in the news with chat, GPT and other uh, possible options in a few minutes. But first of all, good morning. Good morning. 
I was that soldier once. Uh, we went and things weren't happening quite as quickly as planned. And lo and behold, uh, no sooner than we got tested, everything was in place already. And you made a remark to me, that's not unusual that stress and the pressure can influence how things work for you. It's almost like your body has a better understanding of you than you have of yourself. And it's a really classic scenario. In fact, it happened to myself, my wife as well. Things weren't happening as fast. And once you make that decision, right, we're going to do X, it's incredible. Out of the blue come spontaneous pregnancies when you've made that appointment or even you've made that decision to make an appointment to get X or Y done. The psyche and the soma are intimately connected. And your body understands. I think it's true. And we also know, even after failed treatment, for example, how many times does somebody who's been through IVF, it didn't work, and then the spontaneous pregnancy happens? It's almost like that dissipation of anxiety means that Mother Nature, some, somewhere up in, the, in, in your brain and the, the, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland get together and say, actually, that anxiety has now been resolved, so let nature take its course. And it's, it's counterintuitive, but it's real. What else? in terms of lifestyle factors, can influence fertility? I mean, the big ones are the normal toxins that we all know of. Yeah, obviously, the smoking is a big one. But I even think, you know, the metabolic health is a huge thing. I mean, we know that diabetes, pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome from eating processed food, basically, rather than just natural food and food that you cook yourself, is a cause of, of, you know, huge disability, not just heart attacks, but a lot of chronic inflammatory diseases, arthritis and all of that. So we know that diet, fundamentally, what you take in, and of course, at the moment, intermittent fasting, for example, is very popular mm. um, to allow the body to do its own housekeeping, clear up those cells that aren't maybe working so well. So, you know, it's never been more popular to, to, you know, people's diet. I'm not going to, I'm going to avoid dairy, the whole vegan thing, you know, meat, etc. So diet is important. Um, and it's probably the single most important. I mean, in Ireland and in, across the world, the single most common cause of entry to coronary care unit is metabolic syndrome, which is really around the same thing. Car- what, you, what you eat and what you drink. Mm. So, But is it generalised healthy diet advice or are there superfoods or hacks to increase fertility. Yeah, I mean, certainly the two, there's a few things. If women in particular, well, men, uh, you can influence it. a healthy lifestyle, obviously. Hmm. Um, I remember being given gallons of pomegranate juice. Yeah, there are, and, and there's a series of, of nutritional supplements, and I think certainly as well um, the the reduction in depletion of vitamins and essential minerals in the soil has had an impact as well. And of course, vitamin D with COVID, for example, there was a new concentration on making sure people were up to date on vitamin D. Most Irish people are deficient in vitamin D because we're not designed. We should be outdoors and also even our windows, even if they're not double glazed, stop the, the absorption, prevent the absorption. And so, so we need to get out and about and interact with nature. Mm. Uh, and if we're not doing that, we need to supplement. So vitamin D and nutritional supplements, and they are slightly different. The things like selenium and that are needed for sperm production as opposed to egg production. When things like free radical, things like um, coenzyme Q10, anti, these, these agents that soak up uh, oxygen species for what's called free radicals are important. And so a lot of people are on antioxidant uh, medication, women in particular, mm. but men as well. I have friends who've downloaded apps to suggest optimum timing 
getting cushions for different positions and so on. Yeah. How effective are that kind of thinking? The problem is that we're back to the psyche as well. I mean, if you're amplifying this whole thing, I think fully for men in particular, I think that creates a huge anxiety to the point that where, you know, this is our time is incredibly stressful for, for, for the male part <laughs> yeah. and whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, so I think those those ro- they do have a role, but I think if it's more protracted than that, if for example something like that's not working within a period of time, generally the rule of three applies. If something's going to work three times, it, you know, give give it a chance three times in three months, let's say, of whatever it is, and mm-hmm. if it hasn't worked within three, it's almost certainly not highly unlikely to work. And that rule of three applies to anything. It doesn't matter whether you're trying yourself, you're using uh, some uh, oral drugs to enhance your ovulation or, or even doing IVF or, or any fertility treatment, anything really. The rule of three applies. Give yourself three months to try it. And if it's not working within three goes, then it's probably not going to. But at what point should you talk to a professional, somebody like you or your team at First IVF? Yeah. Three months seems a very narrow amount yeah, of time. There's a few metrics. I mean, for example, um, if you look at fecundability is a technical term for somebody's probability of getting pregnancy. I beg your pardon? Fecundability is not a rude word. <laughs> uh, fecundability, and it's the probability that somebody in an index month of ovulating will achieve a pregnancy. Certainly, once you go after six months, if you're not pregnant within six months that you've had a reasonable chance to to get pregnant over that time, you've had sex more or less at the right time, let's say using an app, it becomes increasingly likely that there is a problem. For most people, you know, classically that you try yourself for six months, the second six months you begin to think, well, maybe we need to do something. And then exactly as you describe, Mm -hmm. maybe you organize that sperm test or that egg, egg reserve test and then Classically, often a pregnancy will occur in the second six months. Certainly at 12 months, you know, you're going to want to start getting more proactive. Let's talk about those tests. So what exactly are you looking for? Well, essentially, it's pretty simple. The sperm side, the egg side and the womb and the tubes. So the sperm test classically would be a sperm semen analysis. A guy called uh, Van Ludenhoek looked at his own sperm 250 years ago down the first one of the first microscopes they had and said, saw all these squiggly things moving around. And really, uh, basic semen analysis isn't any different now. How many of them are are there? Do they swim well? And are they do they look normal? Because a normal sperm has a sort of a smooth head on it and a Mm. tail. But some of them have two heads or a huge head or a double head or all sorts of weird production. And funny enough, most men's sperm is abnormal. That's the irony of it. Only about, it's normal to have uh, about 4%. You expect 4 in 100 sperm to be normal. Anything, uh, you're allowed to have 96 out of 100 sperm abnormal. It just shows you how the, the, the difference between the sperm, of which there's millions and millions, compared to the egg, of which there's just the one. And, and you know, uh, sperm... Um, you, there are other tests you can do, things called sperm DNA fragmentation, which is, um, which is like the coherence of the DNA inside the sperm head. But you've got to remember, what is a sperm? It's literally just a sper- the, the DNA with the tail on it. Whereas the egg is a thousand times bigger and it has a huge apparatus for, for generation of energy, for rejuvenating itself, for repairing its own DNA. So all the major work, so everything comes from the egg really. And if the sperm itself is impaired, the egg has the capability of redressing that and actually making that sperm, uh, the DNA of the male, of repairing it, mm. even if the, the male doesn't have that opportunity themselves. So when you're examining the egg, what are the variables? So... Uh, 
Um, the, the simpler way is a thing called AMH, ovarian reserve. So you can tell as a proxy how many eggs a woman has by checking her AMH. And it tells you how many eggs they would produce as well, not just over their lifetime. Do they have a long lifetime? So women with towards the PCO end of the spectrum have more eggs than average. So they have a longer fertility window. Women who have a short, small, uh, low AMH at the other end of the spectrum have a much higher chance of having an early change of life, have a much narrower window. It doesn't affect quality now. It just, just tells you numbers. Egg quality is really about the outcome. You have a healthy baby in front of you, you know that egg was fine. There are new, there's new AI uh, things coming out now looking at eggs, particularly with, with women who are doing social freezing, let's say egg preservation, we're doing an egg freeze for them. And that's beginning to de- be developed now, looking at behaviour of the egg and, and its appearance, that data set that you get when you get an image of an egg. How can you parse that to look at outcomes in the future? Um, what they do with the AI, I suppose, is, is they look to out objective outcomes in the future, they give the, the, the AI system the data of those images, the activity, the behavior. But that's more to do with an IVF scenario. So in the long and the short of it is you can tell numbers without getting the physically taking the egg. But when you look at quality, unless you have a baby there as an outcome, mm-hmm. really you're into some sort of quasi IVF process to look at in vitro, in glass, in a laboratory. What about this, the, the appearance and the behavior of this entity, this egg? sperm embryo that can tell the future its prediction of, of a healthy baby etc you mentioned a third possibility which was around the structure and the tubes yes the third element so you've got the sperm test obviously on the male side you've got the AMH and the two other things you tend to check the prolactin level and the thyroid the thyroid's intimately connected with female fertility and so those are the the, the basic tests there on the womb check it's some visualization uh, are the tubes blocked are the is the womb inside normal? If particularly if maybe the woman's been miscarrying or having early pregnancy losses, is there a polyp or a fibroid or something inside the womb itself that's you know impeding a pregnancy? Um, a swollen tube. Sometimes somebody's maybe had a past infection and the, the tube may be swollen, so it's damaged. Um, so are the tubes open? It doesn't mean they work. You know they work when you they work. Uh, and you know mm-hmm. that must mm-hmm. have been that those that one or both those tubes worked, but more importantly, then anatomically there are common conditions, as I say, polyps in the womb, like people have polyps in their nose or in their gut or various places, and then also things like fibroids, which are smooth muscle tumors, which can build up and actually distort the cavity, prevent the sperm from meeting the egg, etc. So the anatomy basically of the female genital tract. We've covered the tests. The next part is. What the conversation sounds like after those tests. Love the Midlands? Love Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. Several questions for David Walsh of First IVF, which is based in Clane, firstivf.ie, and we'll come back to those questions in a few moments. But David, we've been outlining the uh, lifestyle factors. We've looked at the tests and three main areas of consideration. So, when you get those results, I suppose the conversation can go in any number of directions, but what does it tend to sound like? In the second year, we've talked already the first six months you're trying, the second six months you're beginning to get, think about getting tests done. In the third six months, say from a year to 18 months, generally you're looking at something to augment the natural process. Intrauterine insemination would be the classic thing. So in that process, normally if, if ejaculation takes place, the sperm comes through the neck of the womb into the cavity itself and then meets up with the egg, which is coming up the fallopian tube. So that natural, you want to augment that. You can probably double the chances of that 
that doing by taking the sperm, picking the best swimmers and putting them into the womb close to where the, the egg will be. Uh, one of the descriptions I heard somebody describe about sperm uh, for the sperm journey to the egg is like somebody diving off on Leary Pier and, and swimming to Wales through treacle. <laughs> right. Challenging then. Challenging. So if you've not got good swimmers, that's going to make it really hard. So what you do for a man like that, particularly maybe where the count's not so good or, or they're not so motile sperm, you can actually pick, condense the best swimmers that he has and put them up close to where the egg is. So that'd be intrauterine insemination to boost uh, what uh, people conventionally would, from a vet, veterinary point, would call artificial insemination, intrauterine insemination by husband partner. Mm. What if the issue is there aren't sperm? Or certainly there aren't enough. I mean, funny, yeah. Well, there's two elements there. If the sperm count's very low, and you know there's not, you know, there's only four of them, or there's 40, or there's 400, rather than 4 million or 40 million, you can take an individual sperm and and basically. uh, put it into the egg and the irony was it was found out by accident in Brussels in Belgium and at the time they used to take eggs and, and they were everybody knows you don't put a needle into the egg because the yellow thing will run away the yolk will run away and it'll all be damaged right? so you know you don't do that so what they did was they put it just under the surface of the egg but not into the egg and somebody uh, was a bit clumsy and the needle moved and by accident the needle went into the egg the sperm that was in the, the injection went in and they said, oh, that's the end of that egg. And they went home, they came back the next day and it had fertilized. And that was ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperma, spermosome injection. And ICSI was formed. That means that a man that only has 10 sperm has a reasonable chance of, of fathering a child. Even if that sperm cannot naturally reach the egg, we can bypass Mother Nature to get the egg and inject that sperm in. So that's transformed. A lot of men were forced down the donor sperm route, you know, under those circumstances. And that really has gone out the door unless there's literally no sperm hmm. present at all. So How for, unusual would that be? It's actually quite common. I mean, um, a lot of clinics now do ICSI as a routine uh, in IVF clinics because of the concern that maybe the fertilization rate is a bit low. I don't want to get too technical, but ICSI is nearly done more commonly now than IVF. IVF is where you just take the sperm and the egg and let them fertilize naturally. ICSI is where you inject them in. And actually, most clinics do both in about equal numbers now. All right. What if the difficulty is on the egg side? That is a problem. Because there's a Latin phrase called ex omnum omnii, which means everything comes from the egg. And it's true. The baby, the quality of the, of the whole process is determined by the quality of the, of the egg. The egg is like the, the mothership. The sperm is like a little guy in a, in a thing pod that's been sent off and arrives in and then gets out, gets into the mothership. Then the fertilization takes place. But the egg is, the, is literally the mothership. And so quality problems with the egg are a problem. It's reflected then, of course, in either not getting pregnant or not staying pregnant. Um, and that's a difficult one. One of the benefits, I suppose, where I, AI comes in now is we've got these non-invasive means of looking at embryo's behavior. And we know now that that can be correlated to outcomes because we have hard data. You take the data on two sides of that. What's the behavior of the embryo, the egg sperm embryo? What's the uh, outcomes in terms of healthy babies born? And then you allow it. It does all sorts of strange things, but it correlates them for reasons we don't understand and can now tell us to a greater than 90% probability which embryo has that potential. Again, coming mostly from the egg, I'm afraid. The sperm is, a, is, a, is important, but it's, the egg is more important. Talk to us just in general terms about technology and, and AI and 
how that has improved the chances of success? Yeah, it's it's a lot of it's around black box. You know, the original AI, they looked at drains in New York and, and they found in the summer certain drains would explode up and cause a huge problem, you know, the size of, of those things. And they, mm. couldn't, and they got AI to look at and they still, they managed to calculate, they zone off a particular area because they knew that in this month, they still couldn't work out why. And so what's happening in embryology now is we now know this embryo has a high, very high, like a 95% chance, so 90%, 95% chance of implanting and, and resulting in a success. Whereas um, we don't know why. And there are certain behaviours. And so what's happening now is the AI systems are being interrogated. Well, why did you say that? Why did you say that embryo, not that, that? Why is that embryo more likely to be normal and this one more likely to be abnormal? And so they're going to have to re-engineer the whole understanding of embryology because that's what actually works, because we were going through first principles, what things look like, and now we're basing it on actually what happens. So I think they're going to have to restructure the whole understanding of what embryos are and how they behave is going to have to be re... The embryology schools are going to have to reevaluate based on this new information, which we don't really understand. I'm going to have to do a post hoc rationalizationist. Well, why is that? Why is a certain type of behavior? So... We know it works. It's like that old thing that Gareth Fitzgerald was used to be teased about. You know, I know it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Mm. Well, we're we're in that situation again. We know it works in practice, and we, now we have to reset the theory to understand what's actually going on. A lot of questions to get through. So, one that's coming up quite often: Why are twins or triplets more common through IVF than natural? There's a few reasons. Uh, one is that when we put more than one embryo in. Uh, in IVF, you will have uh, a higher risk of twins in particular and occasionally triplets because even one embryo can divide into two. Obviously, that's identical twins. The second reason is even with something not like IVF, you're still, let's say you're augmenting somebody's natural cycle and giving them ovulation induction agents. There is an increased chance that you might maybe have two follicles there rather than one because generally speaking, the human has the one follicle. So when we even give something simple like Clomid or uh, some other drug, um, uh, you increase the probability that there might be two follicles rather than one. And each follicle can contain an egg and that increases the probability of twins. So it's, it's on both those aspects. A few people, men, are asking about reversing the SNP. So one caller is 44 years of age, for instance. He recalls the surgical cut the burning smell, yeah, that brings back memories. And he's wondering if it's possible and what level of success there is in reversing it. It is possible. The sooner it's reversed, the better, because the longer it goes on, uh, there's all sorts of autoimmune reactions that set in uh, and your body then can nearly become allergic to your own sperm. So it's not just the plumbing has been ceased. It's not just a reanastomosis, which is what the technical term is. So you can reanastomose, but the longer the interval is, and classically, it's going to be more than two years before somebody comes back, the higher the probability that there's actually an immune reaction against your own sperm, which means you have to bypass that, which means for a significant number of men, yes, you can reanastomose, but you may need ICSI to, to father mm. a child the second time around. In other words, you may need to utilise the IVF technology rather than the natural thing. So, the, 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 as I say, time is, a, is, a, is an issue there, the longer the time interval. Okay, another caller asks, and this is probably very hard to answer, the chances of success and how often you would repeat IVF 
until eventually giving up on that as well. Yeah, I think that era is changing because these non-invasive techniques are, are now applicable. We can actually, anybody who's going through, and we can do it retrospectively, by the way, as well. So we can take those images that were recorded back a few years ago and reinterpret for you what your chances were at that time. And then, so we're not just putting embryos in blind or semi-blind at the very least anymore. So we know which embryos. So if you, for example, your your best embryos result in a baby, but you have other embryos which have much poorer scores, we can give you a heads up. Look, these embryos are not so great. The probability of succeeding with them is, is much, much lower. And therefore, either you can decide not to proceed or we need to get some more Mm. Uh, high-grade embryos that, that, that the technology is telling us have a high probability of succeeding. So at least you're going in at the front end without... Now, so we can tell you before the embryo's even been transferred whether you have a high chance of succeeding or not. And therefore, if, if it doesn't work, we can, after, after the fact as well, tell you, right, these are the reasons why it didn't work and this is what we need to change. That was Dr. David Walsh from firstivf.ie based in Clane in County Kildare. Coming next, going from the studio chair to a marathon. Let's catch up again with Midlands 103's Peter Dunn. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Get exclusive content now on the Midlands 103 smartphone app. Midlands 103. So after all the mince pies and the wine and whatever else you've indulged on over Christmas, I hate to tell you, but January's coming. And that means resolutions and perhaps getting up off the bum and doing the couch to 5K, joining the gym, otherwise getting outdoors. But if your name is Peter Dunn, you want to get ready for a marathon. And so over the next couple of weeks, the intrepid presenter of Midlands 103 Breakfast, who has never done an organised run in his life and who is knocking on the door of 40, he's going to subject himself to quite a bit of torture which we can all enjoy as spectators. Let's find out more. Get active with Midlands 183. Powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie So this is it. The second step towards preparing for a marathon. And I want to give you an update on donations so far for Barrettstown Children's Charity. We'll take you through the uh, training plan I received as well. In just a moment, I'll explain more just before I go on my first run. So this is it, training starts now. I got my marathon training plan. Yeah, I probably should have looked at this a bit bit more or a bit more detail. My plan is to rest Monday. I can do that. On Tuesday, I have to run five kilometers. On Wednesday, I have to run five kilometers. On Thursday, I have to run five kilometers. And then on Saturday or Sunday... I have to run 10 kilometers. Whatever day I don't run at the weekend, I have to go for a cycle or a swim or something. Five days a week working out. That's hardly right. It's it's a lot. Um, look, it's the plan. So I'll I'll do it. I'll I'll stick to it. We'll see how we go. Um, the thoughts of having to go in and get changed and run on a treadmill now. But uh, look. <laughs> We set out to do this. We set out to do for a good cause. So um, enough moaning and groaning. Let's get on with it. Oh, that was tough going. Oh, oh God. The five kilometres in, as I say there, 34 minutes, 30 seconds. 
that was tough going for about 24 minutes in during the run I was getting these pains in my stomach and it wasn't so much pains it was kind of a discomfort and I didn't want to stop I wanted to keep going yeah I can explain the stomach thing because um, the day before that I decided to go to an all you can eat breakfast I'll leave it there it's uh, five past five the next morning after the first training day and my legs are in agony my calf muscles are sore my hamstrings are sore my back is sore oh I'm walking like John Wayne I have to do it all again today so exactly what I did yesterday I have to do it all again today the second run wasn't so bad um, I got into a bit of a rhythm so when the legs warmed up after a few minutes it got a little bit easier and I finished my 5k in about 35 minutes so I took it easy on myself so stay number 3 um, I'm supposed to run another 5 kilometers, and uh, I didn't I was supposed to run 5k yesterday which was Thursday and today's supposed to be a rest day I didn't get around to it on Thursday uh, because uh, because life happened, really, and I just didn't get a chance to go running. You know, it, it, it's a very impractical plan when you think about it to run a marathon. I mean, I work full time. You know, we have young kids, and um, by the time you pick the kids up from school, bring them home, do their homework, cook their dinner, bring them to football, hurling, gymnastics, soccer, drama, dancing, whatever they do and get them home, get them sorted, organised for the following day, and get yourself organised for the following day, you've got a very little window in which you can train. And uh, you need a life as well, after all that. But um, for me, I because I do the breakfast show, I need to be in bed at 9 o'clock every night, because I'm up at 5. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you get very little sleep, which I have been getting over the last few days. I'm getting an average of about 6 hours sleep. So... Um, it's um it's sometimes not very practical, but however I decided to do the run on Friday instead of Thursday, and hopefully it won't interfere with anything, and um, we'll see how we go. So gonna head in now and uh, do this five kilometer run. Wish me luck. That's run number three done. I'm just out in the car uh, after finishing up in the gym, and uh, that actually felt okay bizarrely my legs are still sore my calves are sore my thighs are sore my back is sore but not as sore as it had been for the first uh, two runs so I actually think missing yesterday may have given me a bit of recovery time uh, I don't know I really don't know um, but I feel good after that I'm very happy with it um, around 5k in about 33 minutes I'm uh, I'm happy with that anyways uh, I'm to do uh, cross training tomorrow which could be a swim it could be a cycle or something like that and i don't know if i'll actually get to do it i hope not cheapening out on this plan very early on uh, money in week one but uh, i am conscious of it but um i don't think it's a runner for tomorrow no pun intended um but i think um sunday definitely i'm gonna have to get the the long run in and that will be 10 kilometers, hopefully. And uh, that'll be on Christmas Eve. We're due to go out for a few drinks on Saturday night. 
uh, yeah, so we'll <laughs> we'll see how Sunday morning goes. <laughs> Next up is the long run. I've never done 10 kilometres before in my life. And um, it seems a little bit extreme. But you know what they say, when you're making plans, life makes other plans. As my main marathon man, Christopher, found out just before we were due to go on our long run. Well, Pete, uh, first week, I'm already the first hiccup. Uh, I'm absolutely dying with the flu. Look, I know we're supposed to do 10k, but sure, I'll catch up with you eventually. I sure I'll see you during the week. Cheers, man. Right, that's okay. I'm on my own for the first run. That's fine. But I'm in absolute agony with my muscles. And one thing I haven't been doing is stretching. So I had a chat with Cahill Egan from Physio Central on the Arden Road in Tullamore, just across from the hospital. And I asked him, should you stretch? I suppose that, that's a, it's a hot enough topic always in, in, in the physio world and the training world in general about um, warm ups and cool downs and stretching. Everyone has their own routine. For example, I, I, I had someone that's a fantastic runner in their late 60s from locality here. And they kind of came in just for a quick check-in. They asked me, should I be warming up before runs? Um, and I said, have you warmed up for the last 40 years? And they said, no. And they've never had an injury. I said, there's no point changing things now. But if someone's starting off brand new, I'd probably get into a routine where it's stretch and warm up, cool down. Uh, stretching plan on the days off, small home-based um, strength and conditioning plan a couple of times a week in, in, in along with running as well. So probably best options. But I wouldn't be spending, generally with a warm-up, wouldn't be spending more than probably three or four minutes. Happy Christmas Eve. I'm um, staring out my kitchen window at the rain and the wind. And I'm supposed to be doing 10 kilometers this morning. So I found a route that works. We went out last night. I had a few um, responsibilities. I left the car in the venue, as you do. So I figured out a route to run 10 kilometers, pick up the car <laughs> and drive it home. So um, it, it actually it frightened me when I seen where I have to run to because I'm thinking, OK, 10 kilometers grand. OK, but when you see it on a map, it actually made me nervous. So um, uh, wish me luck. Let's go for it. Get active with Midlands 183. Powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie Almost five kilometres in. Ten kilometre run. And, uh, it's windy. It's wet. I find myself jumping over puddles sometimes. And when you're trying to cross over from one path to another... Walking out the traffic, just like that car that went straight past me there, backing up from behind. Oh, there it is. Did it. I have never ran 10 kilometers before in my life. Oh, God, my legs are killing me. <laughs> About six and a half kilometers in, um, I felt a pop in my right calf muscle, and I was limping for about two or three kilometers after that, not sore enough to stop. But uh, I kept going and kept going. I got a little bit better, thankfully. But goodness, I can feel it in my joints. I can feel it in my hips. <laughs> and the wind was blowing against me at one stage. It was ten times as hard. It was tough. But I look, you know something, the buzz I feel right now after doing ten kilometers is... Oh, it, I can't put it into words. It's going to be interesting to see how the limbs respond tomorrow morning. And we're running down the stairs to see if Santi came. Let's relax. I look forward to week two as we get active. Oh, 
with Midlands 103. And thanks to Hearmed in Tullamore. And we're trying to raise as much money as we can for Barrettstown Children's Charity. Yeah, it was a tough old week, but we got through it. And I want to say a big shout to everybody who's donated to Barristown Children's Charity. We'll put in a target of €5,000 because we didn't know what to put in. We didn't know what to aim for. But so far, in a couple of days, we have raised €1,000. Guys, big, big thank you to everybody who's done that. You will not believe what a difference that will make to children all across the country and all across the Midlands as well. And I can't wait to tell you more about Barrettstown Children's Charity. They're absolutely amazing. Anyway, next week it's much the same with a little bit of a longer run. I will tell you more about that next Wednesday on Breakfast on Midlands Today and of course, wherever you get your podcasts as well. Type in Get Active with Midlands 103 and you can follow our journey there or online Midlands103.com and all our social media platforms as well. Get active with Midlands 183, powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie. And good luck with all of that, Peter. And if you want to follow his progress or even take part, Check out the Midlands 103 socials and midlands103.com. We're already putting the next Midlands Today show together. Get your topic included. Email midlandstoday at midlands103.com. And for the final part of our programme, putting together two loose cannons and one Westmeath bachelor, what's the worst that can happen when Kieran Clark sits down with Mary Sherwin and Helen Steins? Let's find out. How are the loose cannons? Well, we're great. So how do you feel about being here with us now? I'm, I'm a little bit scared, if I'm being honest. Now, I've been doing well so far in uh, all my appearances on radio and TV. But now this, this, this is a bit nerve-wracking. And pray tell, why is it a bit nerve-wracking? Well, Mary, it's because I'm here before two women who are loose cannons. <laughs> We'll be gentle, we'll be gentle with you. Surely to God, the winner of A Bachelor is able to handle two loose cannons. <laughs> to be honest, I was confident enough I could handle the tree before I got here. <laughs> oh! <laughs> but there's only two now and I'm like, oh. <laughs> what in the name of God possessed you to go for it anyway? Because, you know, it's it's the Rosa Trilly is something different. You know, why why would you even put yourself forward for something like this? Yeah, so... I was having a rough week, I suppose, and I seen an application... Uh, so I, I'm I'm sing- only single since November and I was in a long term relationship and I seen I was looking online at Google and on articles and I seen uh, an article about Fla right so I was like okay let's read this I, I, I was at the Fla last year it was yes I was reading about the Fla and uh, I seen this application for the next big festival that's going to be on next year in Mullingar which was Westmead Bachelor. And I said, you know what, that'll get me out of house for a weekend. Okay. And it ended up getting me a house, out of house for about eight or nine weekends. Loads of weekends. It was an unbelievable time after having, over the last few months. I'm a Rosemount man, County Westmead. Mm-hmm. But I actually have huge ties to Mullingar. Okay. So I'm so excited to try and get this up and running. Like, yeah, I'm the winner this year, that's class. But, um... What I want now is, so I'm, I'm the ambassador for a show, yeah. But anyway, but, but what I want to do now is I want to, um, I want to make it better for next year. Mm-hmm. I want to make it so much better next year. I want and to make, bigger, yeah, probably. yeah. And I want the next year's bachelor to be even bigger than I am. Mm-hmm. 
Well, no, I'm gonna, I'm, I, want, I want to make a big. What myself, are you? Five foot what? Is it? Is he, is he going to be bigger than you? Like no. what are you? Five, five, nine, five, ten? We, we won't bring height into this. <laughs> <laughs> so come here. What makes you the bachelor? You know, what? what so obviously, you, to- you have to be single. You have to be single. Mm. That's the only rule. Now you can be gay or straight or um, circle or square. Ideally, you're single, yeah. Mm. Like I, I, I was like, great, now I have an excuse to be single. That's super. So did you kind of rebound into it then from a long-term relationship? No. No. No, I was more excited about, well, in a roundabout way, maybe, but no, more so no, because I was having a bad week, um, but I was at that stage of being out of a relationship where I was fine. Where you're happy and you yeah. decided that life is okay to be single. And exactly. Yeah. But uh, I was, it was, I was a week, it was coming into a week where I had nothing planned. Mm. at the weekend mm. so I was like I'm just, there's a plan it's <laughs> down the line but it, there's a plan yeah. so yeah I did, did it for that reason more than anything else so uh, we not, don't no, generally the, the main reason actually was because of the FLA because of taking the FLA's uh, position next year in yeah. Wangar and the FLA was just so exciting last year cool mm. crack oh, oh. Mm. or come on I know I'm, I mean couple of fucal are terrible how would you envisage a first date so now that you're going to be out you're going to be out and about you're the bachelor we're going to come back and talk about the specific qualities you have mm. you know to be the bachelor the Westmead bachelor but if you were you know where would you bring somebody on a date for a first date I, I practice with this question now because that was the, what Pippa wanted to know on the night Pippa O'Connor was at the Westmead Bachelor, by the way, guys, and she's an absolutely stunning person. So, and that's that's apart from her look. She looks incredible, but she is incredible as well. And so is Brian. Um, the uh, answer to your question was, the question was, where would I bring a woman on a date? Yes. So, like, I'm quite a creative person just in general. Um, so I'm thinking at the moment, I'd, uh, I've been, see, I'm in, I work in Dublin 95. I get the bus up every day, get the bus home every day. And I think if I was going to first date, it would most likely be in Dublin. Okay. And it, what I would do is um, I, there's axe throwing in Dublin. That sounds class. I'm an outdoorsy person myself. There's this uh, arcade in Dublin called Token, and you go in there and you can drink pints. You can. It's it's a restaurant. For, it's an adult. It's an adult uh, arcade. But uh, you know, and it's class. And is is this where you're throwing the axes? So you have no, a few points, and then you, you lose a limb on the yeah, date exactly, with you. Yeah, is no, that no, it? No, you're not. There's no points with the axe throwing. We're actually not having points on a date if I go on a date with someone. Uh, I'm not doing points on a date, and Good. I'd be putting the foot down, saying you're not either. Oh, okay. And and why? Ooh, I'm putting the foot down. <laughs> I'll give you a little bit of advice. That's not a great start to a first date. Don't put the foot down. <laughs> why? Oh, I'd be a gentleman in other parts. You've no idea. I was on a first date recently, right? Yeah. And uh, at the end of it, um, we were walking back to my car and I walk around to her side and I opened the door for her. Mm-hmm. My God, you want to see her face? She was like, what? She thought you'd forgotten something like, and you were taking it out. This lad, what's this lad doing? Like, he's after opening the door for me, imagine. And I was like looking back and going like, am I after doing something wrong? But uh, then she sat into the car anyways and she uh, basically was all butterflies then when I got into my side because I'd actually opened the door for her. Lads, if any lads are listening, right, pull out, your, pull out her chair open doors for her right and I don't mean open the door for her she can open the door herself hold if you're it. about to walk through it mm. yeah hold it get the car door for her that's different that's being a gentleman that makes mm-hmm. her feel safe women love that but uh, the whole crack with well, you're 
equality now. You can open your own door. Let her open the door for you too, 100%. Mm. But... Um, no, I think it's lovely and I think women do appreciate that and as you say, it is really nice that that's recognised. When, when it comes to paying on a date, did you pay or did you split the bill? How did that work? No, that depends because I, I end up going on two girl dates with this girl and it just, it, it didn't work out right. First kiss, very important too, lads, if you're listening. Right, so on a, on a, on a date, right, don't think about the first kiss. Let her do all the think about the first kiss, right? Um, she's going to remember forever, right? But be ready for it if she's going to if she wants it. And I wasn't ready for the kiss in this scenario. And she oh, threw, no. she 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 headbutt me. Oh. And but uh, like uh, absolutely wonderful woman. Um, but she hasn't spoken to me since, even though I was still interested in her. And it was her that that, that went in for the kiss with me. So just throwing that out there, lads. But uh, don't think. So, but, but yeah. So so basically. Inadvertently, as she was coming in to kiss you, she headbutted you. Yeah, because I wasn't. I wasn't expecting a kiss. Okay, no, that's okay. You were startled. <laughs> I can, you, you strike me as the type of person who get you know bunny rabbit headlights. Like, what do I do? Joking here. Not. So we all are wearing glasses here now in this situation. So had your glasses on or off? You see, that's 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 that's, that's the story. Why that's why I won't have points. Now, if I have points in me, I'm I'm no rabbit in headlights. I'm, I'm I am the headlights. I had the glasses on. Right, so maybe that could have been something to do with the headbutt. That what she saw herself reflected in the glasses, and then she decided to go. Like, <laughs> it's just there's more to hit, isn't there? Like, no, but I just and then was it afterwards that she felt really awkward? Did you talk yes. about it? Did you yes, talk about? We it? didn't Did talk you? about it. We probably should have no. talked about it, and then we put, then we'd probably still be seeing each other. See, this is the thing: communication. Guys do not get the fact that you need to talk. That and and I know that probably when something embarrassed. Uh, you know, something embarrassing happens that you don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it either. But I do think that if somebody talks about it and then says, oh, Jesus, you know, make a joke of it. Can you imagine? Oh, isn't that gas? So when are we going? But, but that comes that. with age and confidence, doesn't it? Like, you know, like an experience, you know, life experience. Well, he's not that young. What age fairness. are you, Carol? 29, but 29. to be fair, like it was, I was fairly awkward when I was younger. And I'm not awkward anymore. Um... Like, there's, lads, another thing you have to do is you have to work on yourselves all the time um, and never stop. Um, when I was 25, 26, I was still awkward. And I, there's no awkwardness in me now, I can tell you that much. And I have Pippa O'Connor, Brian Ormond, Louis Walsh and Anne Doyle can back me up on that. But, um, yeah, no, there's just... So there was a little bit of awkwardness. And like what you're saying there about experience, like, I could probably do with a little bit more experience, but I'm I'm not crazy about getting experience with women I'm crazy about developing my career and all those goals they're actually way more important like this this is another thing lads you could do with, with doing is stop worrying about women I don't worry about them at all anymore like there's no point look you'll find someone eventually it doesn't matter until like and even even if you don't find someone stop worrying about them worry about yourself Yourself comes first all the time, and if if you knew me before, I was I was recently on television, and I was very cocky and confident on that. But um, don't worry about women at all, lads. You need to worry about yourself. If you don't love yourself, how can anybody else love you? I suppose that'd be the woman's way of saying it. That would be how we'd say it. Um, And I think as well that things happen when you least expect it. That you can make connections with people that you wouldn't think of. That, you know, if you're actively, the more actively you pursue, you know, 
women or males, I think that you can get very disappointed. That works both ways mm. as well. And I didn't realise it worked both ways until my face was everywhere. And now I have a full inbox and I have no interest. So Zero women are clamouring. They're clamouring to get you, Kieran, aren't yeah. they? Now, lads, I know you've all, you've, we've all done that at one point, but like tried that with a woman and she's, you get no response and you're like, why? Yeah, you, the why is because nobody wants you, uh, uh, someone to come into their DMs that they don't like. You want to meet someone in real life. Real life actually works very well, lads. Do that. Uh, I'm having that, a good time, good crack with real life at the moment as well. Actually. That takes a lot of courage because it means that you actually have to go up to that person, look them in the eye and come up with some kind of a witty chat up line. Whereas, you know, <laughs> online you can just go, hey, you know, like your profile pic or something. Do you know? Lads, you don't need a witty chat, chat up line though. You just need you just need to be able to do the approach. Eye contact is brilliant when you're approaching someone. But... Don't, yeah, I, I actually tried an approach there recently from behind and I all of a sudden, like I, I was thinking, I, was, I turned around and I was like, uh, I'm actually really cool. Like I said something ridiculous. I'd actually stupid. turn around and kick you. Honest <laughs> to God, I was such an idiot. But like, I'm, I'm fine when, when, but literally seconds later, I had a great interaction with a girl because... I approach it from the front. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like a horse, you know, don't walk up behind him and he won't kick you. Yeah, we're skittish. You know? If you come up behind yeah, us, we're skittish. I'm going to kick you. I might bite yeah. you though if you come forward to the so front. Never, never do that, even, even, if, even if you're on off the back of the Westmead Bachelor, because that was kind of what I was doing as well. And that brings our best of the Midlands Today Show to a close for today. Thank you very much for your company and thank you Sinead Hubble for putting not just the compilation together but for doing all of the hard work through 2023. Carl James is next with the Afternoon Show. Good morning. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Student's Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.